you have heard of the Manning Cast, well, I would like to welcome you to the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is two of the top brothers in compliance, Nick and Gio Gallo, talking compliance. In this podcast series, we bring them together for a free-form exploration of compliance topics. It's great insights brought to you from the co-CEOs of Ethico. Fun, witty, insightful, with a dash of the two brothers throughout. I know you'll enjoy the Gallo Cast. The Gallo Cast is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the special Christmas and holiday edition of the Gallo Cast. Last month, we were treated to Thanksgiving with the Gallo Brothers. This year, we're going to be treated to Christmas. So, gents, first of all, welcome. Hey. Glad to be here, Tom. Glad to be doing another edition of the Gallo Cast. And Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to everyone. Wishing you lots of health and prosperity. So I read that the Manning brothers got a three-year deal. So I'm thinking that the Compliance Podcast Network may have to talk to your agents, our agent, about... We may need a new agent because our agent's been dropping the ball lately, if you ask me. Yeah, we keep doing Uh, this stuff for free. Gents, rather amazingly, or perhaps not, since our last podcast a couple of weeks ago, we've had some major corporate scandals come out. And I wanted to maybe take some of the highlights and see your thoughts. The first one is the AB FCPA enforcement action. And there's a lot to unpack here, but what I really wanted to focus on was this was company had a three time, it's the first three time FCPA offender. And even with that three peat moniker, they were able to get a discount from the Department of Justice and the fine and penalty and were not assigned a monitor. And I really wanted to ask you guys when a corporation makes a decision literally at the top that our culture has to change, how do you go about changing it? If you have that true commitment, what steps would you advise a company to take if the CEO says, we're never going to do this again? It's a big question. If you just think about how much like force of will and process and schedule and planning and dedication it takes just to start a new workout regimen yourself, you're one person trying to make that change of just like, ah, I got to get up at five and start working out. If you think about all of that, like that's a change in your own personal culture, right? I'm going to sleep differently and I'm going to get up at a different time and I'm going to eat differently to organize around this goal. You're trying to do that for a company of dozens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of employees. And it's a big undertaking. So I think that if you're doing that, you just need to realize that thing probably needs to be a top three priority for the next three to five years, because it's not going to be, all right, for the next two months, I'm going to do a couple town halls and I'm going to tell some, we're going to, we're going to roll out and we're going to put a new cover page on the policy book and we're going to get some guys, some new tchotchkes and then everyone's going to have a different culture. It's a big dedication. That thing, I got to get up at five to do it. It takes a bunch of starts and stops and okay, I fell off and you got to get back on it. If you really want to have a core change to your culture, you got to have a long-term dedication for it. And I think the corollary for that is if you want to do that, you need to have like enough reason to do it that you're going to stick it out because there's going to be a bunch of time and money and giving up other, there's opportunity costs to do it. So you got to just attack it from every angle that you can. It's just an opportunity. I always say stuff like this, but it's just, it comes down to how you utilize it as an opportunity. It's a, it's an opportunity to reinvent your culture if you use it that way. And if you're going to have staying power with it, and if it's going to actually change something 
you have to stick with it and you have to talk about it all the time. And it can be a rallying cry if you make it that, or you can fall into the trap that I see a lot of companies and just leaders in general fall into where it's like they start engaging in like the spin zone type of talk internally. And I think everyone at this day and age can sniff out the spin zone. Everybody knows what spin is. We have an eye and an ear and a nose for authenticity and inauthenticity, frankly, and trying to downplay stuff because you're worried about it getting out and all that, that just ends up being super counterproductive. And I think the worst thing you can do in something like this is not just not put stuff in place that's going to move things forward, but not take advantage of the opportunity that something that can be a watershed event and a watershed moment for your culture can play in the broader story of your company. Yeah, I think you got to look at like all the things that make up culture, right? Culture is not just like the slogan you make for your company and you just change that. And now everyone's going to do something different because we put a new five words under our logo. Right. It's made up of incentives and the hearts of the people that you put in leadership and the way that you deal with exceptions and problems and what you talk about and focus on and measure and all of that. I think that if you're going to engage in that, you got to look at kind of all those different facets of your company. And then you have to go through this change management process of, okay, what's, what's going to be sticky and early wins that we need to go through and you need to get to work and then you need to keep doing the work. Yep. Gio, it strikes me that what you have described is a business process. It's a business process for change, but it can be the same business process that you would utilize going forward for any new initiative, whether it be a product or a service, yeah. a rebrand or a something. And it really takes it out of the realm of, oh, culture soft and squishy and we can't change that. Actually having a project management plan with PM experts doing it, helping compliance and moving forward in a controlled, systematic manner that can be measured, monitored and improved. Yeah, it's, it is exactly that. And while we were talking about this, I was just thinking in my mind, what's the corollary for like the, I got to start working out, right? Also, by the way, guys, get your, uh, get your new year's resolutions going because you got to have something that you work on for two and a half weeks at the start of January. <laughs> but it's like the dreaded ERP system or whatever, like big kind of rollout of a new technology system at a corporation is, it's, oh, we got to do all of this stuff. We got to do all this training and this onboarding and this planning and project management and assign this stuff. If you're going to do like a massive overhaul of your culture, then you got to be doing that kind of stuff because it is a business process. And as squishy as it is, because it's the sum of the actions and choices and like priorities and values of all your employees, right? Like however you want to define culture, there are like concrete, actual things that you need to do that are going to show up in meeting agendas and measurements and KPIs and stuff. If you want to really drive that change, you yeah. want to jump in with something? It's just so to me, how everybody talks about culture as this so squishy thing, like it's not, I mean, if you're a healthy person, is that a squishy thing? No, it's to Gio's point. It's a bunch of like habits that, that you form and those are all actions and th those are all activities. I think a lot of people think culture is the amorphous thing that you can't change and it's the, the fates are determining it and the animal spirits drive it forward. It's not how it works. You can control your culture and your family with your kids, with your team, with your broader company. It just takes some intentionality. And it's not this haphazard process. It's a bunch of steps. It's a bunch of rallying cries. It's a bunch of articulations of what works and what doesn't work and what we stand for and what we don't. And if you do those things enough, our company is proof of this. If you do those things enough, they start to take hold and more people start to sing that same song. It's not just like a bunch of people aren't just going to, this isn't a musical where like a bunch of music starts playing and everybody starts magically dancing in sync. There's a song sheet and there are notes on that sheet that we all sing, start singing in harmony and you can build a full chorus of that, but you have to sing that song enough for people to start to get it. That's not a 
That's not alchemy. That's not a... It's not a spontaneous order that just happens yeah, exactly. because some things exactly. like fall into place. Right. Compliance the music. I can't <laughs> wait. Hey, hey, hey. Imagine. Hey, send it to our agent. <laughs> there we go. Okay, let's move to the next enforcement action. Not an FCPA matter, but an AML. And that was So Don's before we move on, Tom, if, if I may, I think it's really interesting that like they got this type of from this from this enforcement. And I think it speaks to like, this is not... I think it speaks to what, if you can convey sincere effort and make it a really high priority for you and your team, obviously you don't want to say, Hey, you know what? We can get in trouble and we can get out of it. But I think part of what like the enforcement bodies and the regulators are looking for is just, can we get you to fix this thing? Not just make an example out of you. I think a lot of times people just think that, Oh, if regulators are enforcing, then I'm just going to be in trouble. I'm going to be in the doghouse. I think this shows that they're like, okay, yeah, you're a three Pete, but if this is going to actually get it fixed. I think regulators are interested in the results, in getting things to be effective, not just in handing out punishments. And to that point, I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of people because of our podcast who have been regulators historically, and now they're working in-house or something like that. And the thing that I keep coming back to over and over again is that the regulators are way more reasonable than we fear them to be, or we fear them to be super unreasonable and them walking around with one of those, like those guillotines on wheels. They really want, they want effectiveness and they want, they want to see genuine effort. And I think putting reasonable effort forward that you can articulate and you can document gives you a lot of progress toward avoiding the, the chopping block. Let's move to a, another enforcement action, the Donske Bank enforcement action. This was not an FCPA matter, but an AML matter where Donske Bank's Estonia branch allowed over $260 billion to be laundered through its branch. And there's a lot in this case, but there's one point I wanted to focus on to ask you guys about, and it's the following. The Estonia branch came to Donske Bank through acquisition. So there was a different ERP. And immediately after the acquisition, this was identified as a weakness because the Estonia branch ERP system could not talk to the home office. They couldn't talk to them either on financials or on compliance side, due diligence and KYC issues. And I wanted to use that as an entree to ask you guys, why is an integrated system so important? And why should companies get away from, even if they've grown through acquisition, disparate ERP and compliance systems? I mean, for exactly what you're talking about, because things need to be able to talk to each other. There, We see this thing on and on, and we see it over and over again. And there's a whole industry of due diligence that has built that has come up on acquisitions and ongoing due diligence, whether it's with vendors or other parties that get engaged with your business, it's critical to do due diligence, right? Like clearly this was an underwriting issue from the acquiring company's standpoint, right? They knew that this ERP system wasn't talking to the home office and they underwrote it and they thought it was a green risk or maybe a a light yellow risk. It turned out to be a deep red, blood red risk. So that integration piece, look, if you can find the silver bullet system that can capture all of your risks and everything communicates to each other, then great, find it, let us know where it is. In most cases at a large enough company, that's not going to be available. So you have to figure out a way to stop those to make those systems bridge to each other. And that can be done by a human being, that can be done through coding or whatever, but you have to communicate. Otherwise, something like this can happen. 
And frankly, we see this even on mid-sized organizations or just primarily domestic organizations that are spending a bunch of, we, we exist in the software space. And there are so many sort of broken Frankenstein systems out there that purport to be integrated that don't actually communicate with each other. And all of those things are really just leaks in the hull of the ship that can allow for something maybe not as big as this sort of Estonian money laundering scenario, but whatever the sort of relative equivalent is for your business. I think also just to hop on a soapbox, this next soapbox <laughs> is we can't rely on a system itself. There's always going to be humans until chat GPT comes, becomes self-aware. There's always going to be systems that are going to be operated by human beings. And we can't just rely and assume that the system is going to be communicating appropriately. That means that we have to have ongoing tests of these controls that we have in place, the inroads and the connection points between these systems so that we don't get caught out over our skis. Yeah. And obviously it's a great scenario to dream about when you're sipping your coffee on Saturday morning and just making, setting up your life board of just one system, no matter how many acquisitions you do, it always integrates everything quickly and cleanly and you can see everything at the push of a button. And listen, there are billions of dollars being invested in software platforms to help pursue that dream. But so like that should happen. But the reality to Nick's point is like, that's not always going to happen or put another way, even if you have that policy, the day after an acquisition, it's not there and there's going to be some risk until you get that additional ERP settled. And I think that this this scenario feels like a miss on a few different levels. Yeah. But one of them to me is obviously everyone knew that these systems weren't integrated. So if that if you're going to be in that scenario, which a bunch of us are going to live our lives in a scenario where everything isn't perfectly integrated and it's all showing up on one pane of glass on my dashboard. If you're in that, then you need to make sure that the way you're rating those risks and how you're assessing that and how you respond to it is appropriate. And in this case, there probably should have been a whole compliance program dedicated to the Estonia branch. And it feels like a failure of like properly pitching the ROI for compliance yeah, right. where somebody yeah, should point. have said the integration team, the acquisition team or something said, Hey, you know what? We're not going to be able to integrate these systems. So we're going to have this Island of this system out here that we're not going to have full view on. So we need to replicate all of that stuff here. So that's going to cost us $2 million in order to run annually run a full compliance program for this branch. So we should just expect that, or it's going to cost $5 million to integrate the ERP. So we'll take two instead of five, but there's no option for zero where we just say this island gets no compliance because it's not integrated. So obviously I don't know exactly how that happened, but the fact that there was plenty of like compliance oversight at the mothership and this thing that was a known quantity that wasn't integrated, maybe it was the group, it was flagged as a light yellow on the assessment scale or something. But I think that we as compliance leaders need to say, Hey, like we're not going to get the nirvana of Everything always talks to everything right away and it's all an integrated system. And there's really no realistic option for us to sit out here and say, all right, we're just going to leave this appendage unmonitored and it's just going to be where it is. So we need to illustrate the trade-offs in the middle of, okay, we could integrate all of these things or we could replicate all of our compliance efforts on this appendage. But those are the things that we're choosing between, not do nothing or have it perfect. And right. I think that's what we need to be able to have those strategic conversations with our leadership and say, hey, listen, there's this is not just like a vague risk. This is something that we're absolutely not doing properly. And we need to cover it either by, in, in this case, either integrate the system or double all of our efforts on it. But doing nothing is just going to lead to this stuff over and over. Let's turn now to it's Tuesday. So we must be finding Wells Fargo for something. Uh, but this <laughs> Tuesday was a little bit more. It was 3.7 billion. And 
I was communicating with our friend Matt Kelly and literally it was, well, it's Tuesday, another Wells Fargo fine. But our friend Eric Young posted some, which totaled Wells Fargo's total fines and penalties for this century at 22 plus billion. That's over four CEOs. That's not one bad apple. That's not Mm -hmm. one bad guy. Why can't this bank, perhaps the most iconic banking brand in America outside of JP, why can't, or Chase, why can't Wells Fargo fix itself? So how much is it? 22 billion? 22 billion plus. So a billion a year is what they've been fined. And they're making how much? 40? 19 billion in revenue. They're making 19 million, 19 billion in revenue. So I don't know. Assuming that's been relatively flat. Oh, that might be. Yeah, I think it's higher than that. Yeah, call it 80. Yeah, so 20, so it's 80. So yeah, it's 80 to 100 billion. So uh, it's just, it's basically a billion a year relative to 80. It's less than one, or it's less than 2% of the revenue over this time has been defined. So yeah, it sounds like a really big number, but it's relatively not that big of a number. So maybe that's why it keeps happening because it's not that big of a... Billionaires have no problem parking their Lamborghini in the handicap spots and paying the $200 fine every time because it's not a needle mover for them. This is 1% of their revenue is not that big of a needle mover. So perhaps the reason this keeps going on and on is because it doesn't, there's not so much pain where it's really rocking their stock price or it's really changing payouts at the CEO level or whatever. Yeah, it might be that. I think we can go back to the first topic and it's a cultural thing. And I I think that I'm not going to say that Wells Fargo just has a terrible culture and it's toxic and stuff like that. If this stuff keeps happening to the point where Tom Fox is making jokes about them getting fined a billion dollars every Tuesday, like there's something going on and it seems like it hasn't changed. I imagine that the narrative inside the company and what they're saying is, hey, listen, we were in a, you know, we did these mergers and we lost track of these things and we really lost our way and we're getting back on track. And they're probably not saying this, but the implication is we haven't perfected this compliance monitoring and making sure this doesn't ha- this stuff doesn't happen yet. So we need to keep working through these things as we find them until we really get healthy. Maybe there's a side of it of they're improving a lot. And you know what? If they hadn't made any changes in the past decade, this alone would have been a $30 billion fine, but they've constrained it. So it may be that it just takes a long time to take this huge cruise ship that's this $100 billion annual revenue company and get it pointed in a new new direction. It might be that. Or it might be what you're saying, where they're just like, all right, you know what? It's probably going to take a lot of hassle and we might lose we might lose $5 billion a year in revenue if we really clamp down on all these 50 different areas. But let's pick through those as we can, but let's not get too crazy about completely changing our diet and completely getting healthy and doing two a days working out right away. We'll just get on it eventually and we'll eventually be there. It may just be like the natural rate of change that's required. Maybe they're not motivated enough. But I imagine like it's a very complex thing to, to make those changes at a $100 billion. I must say the commitment to a two a day in the winter is very impressive. I hold out till the summer when I'm getting ready for <laughs> summer training camp for my two a days. Yeah, but, but it's a uh, little more enjoyable. Exactly. More <laughs> heat, more sweat. Exactly. The who's, if anyone's responsibility in getting wells moving in the right direction, is this the regulators who just need to bring a harder or bigger hammer? Is this us as customers or consumers? Are there other stakeholders who can influence this? Or are we just stuck as the, indeed the head of the CFPB said, rinse and repeat? 
and it's just going to be that way. It sure feels like it. I don't see people like leaving Wells Fargo due to this. I don't think the average person who has an account there is so concerned with it that they're closing their account and moving on. I don't know. what's Who's responsible for it? It's like whoever it matters most to is responsible for it. And if enough, and, there, and if there's enough action that can come from that sort of responsibility, then I think, I think this is just how the world works. Then some, something's going to change. If there's not enough pain, then no one's going to change anything, maybe. Yeah, there's this principle around accountability that if it's everyone's responsibility, it's no one's responsibility. Mm-hmm. And there's this, the, you know, it, in this book, Principles, Dalio talks about having an RP, a responsible person, and saying, this is the person that's going to make sure this all happens. Maybe this is just a really complex thing and everyone actually needs to carry their piece of it. And some consumers need to quit and some employees need to protest and some regulators need to do fines and some CEOs need to drive stuff. That's a nice way to think about how this stuff happens. But generally in the world, people are going to do what they're motivated to do. And I think for now, nobody across any of these stakeholders is motivated to say, never again, never again will I let my company or will I work at a company or will I let a company under my watch or never again will this happen. And we're going to absolutely do everything we need to do to make sure this never happens again. It's this, I don't know, a road to Abilene or kind of a death by a thousand cuts of like, all right, we could probably survive the next one and we'll get a little bit better, but I could probably get away with a few more desserts today. I'm probably not going to die from this cookie. So I'm just going to eat this one. I think it's this thing that like, if anyone cares enough, they can use as much of their power to affect it. But it's, it's this dispersion of influence and care and concern and stuff like that. That just means we got to either keep working on it or become complacent with it or wait until some, I'm sure we could put it all on the next CEO and say, all right, we're going to make sure that the next CEO cares about compliance more than anything else. And they'll drop the $100 billion of revenue down to 40, just to make sure that we have 40 billion of compliant revenue. And then we'll build it up from there. I imagine shareholders don't want that to happen. And then shareholders are saying, hey, you know what? If the trade-off is lose 20% of revenue because we just have to say no to these risky things, or we just pay 1% a year in revenue until we can chip away at it, shareholders would probably be like, I'd rather my pension fund retain some value than really wreck things in order to get there, which is these trade-offs that happen. And at this point, it seems pretty evident after 22 years that no one really cares enough to say none of this is ever going to be okay again. So we got to just keep pushing on it. Let's turn to the story that never ends. And that, of course, is Elon Musk. (laughs) And here, I will not ask you if you'll be putting out a poll to consider the leadership of the Gallo cast. Yeah. We, we or, are implementing blue checks at, at Ethico, though. We're going we're gonna to have our employees pay for blue checks. I did put a Twitter poll out or a, a Slack poll out, and I, but I did monitor everyone's responses. But what I wanted to maybe focus on is when I was in the corporate world, in the legal department, the number one paramount rule over all else was no surprises. And that meant for your immediate supervisor. That meant for your boss's boss. That meant for the division president, and it meant all the way up. And if I saw something or something was going to go south, I was to tell somebody because they didn't want to be in a meeting hearing about this the first time. And so I really took that to heart and perhaps overshared more than I I should have because I was trying to figure out my equilibrium on that. But that was what that corporation wanted. They wanted full disclosure internally. And so I wanted to, it's just struck me over the past couple of weeks, we, 
members, our employees, our shareholders, our investors, advisors, our third parties have just been ping pong back and forth around Musk and Twitter. So how does that really foster a negative culture if you're an employee or any of those other stakeholders I mentioned, consumers, investors, third parties, localities, and it is or is the need for certainty in a corporation just overblown in uh, y'all's opinion? Great question. So I think I can attack that question a couple different ways. I think at some level it is overblown. And I think believing that you're going to get this high level of certainty is there's going to be a trade-off for that somewhere. And so there's going to be a trade-off in maybe growth or change that can come along with growth and things like that. And so maybe it needs to be like a, a highly regulated or a highly bureaucratic type of an environment that's not growing or that's not growing well beyond or much beyond the regular GDP rate to get the level of stability that I think a lot of people expect. The fact is there are massive changes going on all the time in terms of the technology that we use and how our markets work and how, how we interact with each other. And I think the older I get, the more I understand that the more things change, the more they stay the same, but also the only constant is change. And so it's always going to be moving. I think if you wait for all the waves to be still before you take your ship out of the harbor, you're never going to explore anything. And so what ends up happening is you have to get a crew of folks that have the sea legs needed to, to work on the ship that you're taking. So I think it is largely overblown in my mind. People can solve for what they feel most comfortable with, right? If you want a smooth sailing thing, then go work on a cruise ship or stay a landlubber. You know what I'm saying? That's not going to be tossed to and fro. That said, I think just to dive into the Twitter thing a little bit, I don't know what role, I don't know, we can guess how tumultuous the culture inside Twitter is right now. I don't really know. I don't know what it's like inside of there. I'm sure it's a probably mix of things. I also don't know how much Elon Musk is playing the game to get more users on Twitter and them to, I think Twitter's like viewership, usership, time on Twitter has definitely gone up over the last couple of months. So I don't know how big of a role, I don't know what game of, is he playing Chinese checkers or is he playing chess here? I don't know. Yeah, I would consider that change thing from the perspective of like a balanced stakeholder view of an organization. And I think that this is an interesting case study where on one hand, the ownership of Twi Twitter has completely flipped from public company with all these different pension funds owning it and mutual funds and all these different investors, some activists, some not, whatever, the guy Jack being part of the ownership team or whatever, to just it's run by Elon Musk and he owns it and he paid his $40 billion for it and he's going to do what he wants with it. Obviously, there are a bunch of other stakeholders outside of the shareholders, right? right. So if you're in that 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 old kind of Keynesian mindset of, hey, you know what, it's just all about shareholder value, then you maybe look at this and say, it's Elon Musk's company and he can run into the ground if he wants because he's the shareholder and that's all that matters. Hopefully it's obvious at this point, that's not how we view the world. There are a bunch of different stakeholders here, right? It's the Twitter is the digital ages public square and it has an impact on media and news and society. And there are a bunch of employees there and all of that. I think that in that old viewpoint, you could say, well, he's a shareholder, so he can drive whatever change and wreck shareholder value and drive all the issues away. And if that's just what he wants to do is he wants to burn $40 billion on this pet project over a year, then he can do it. I think more and more we're looking at this as, hey, you know what? This is, it's certainly not a utility, but there is some public good aspect to Twitter that right. journalists care about it and people have a lot of fun on it and there's bad stuff that happens. People get bullied and it is this kind of big thing that's bigger than any one person. And then when you look at that, then it's okay. If you're looking at it in that kind of holistic view, then how much change is necessary or appropriate or when does it become inappropriate? And I think that's, it's anyone's guess. 
I think that there there are a bunch of different viewpoints on what's going on in, on Twitter. And it's not, I think we've all seen the hit pieces of, oh, it's going down in flames and there are people cheering for its demise because they hate Elon Musk or they don't like billionaires or they don't like these types of plays. Obviously, there are a bunch of disgruntled employees who have their own view about it and stuff like that. And then there are other people who are hopeful or they're big Elon Musk fans. They're like, oh, he's going to reinvent the world or whatever. So I don't know what the balance of that is. I do think that like, I think that there, there are always people in a scenario like this who are hoping against the success of something and just seeing the bad stuff. Then there's also all the people in the middle where we all have a bias to like notice pain and to be fearful of risk and, yeah. and to see change and see it as this is probably going to mess up all the reliability that I have. So there's a bunch of that going on, but also like to me, what he's been doing there, I'm not even passing judgment on whether it's good or it's going to result well, but it's like a very like standard classic playbook of how to run a turnaround or disrupt a culture or really get things shake shook up really quickly of you do a bunch of layoffs and then you make a bunch of mistakes and then you kind of do things quickly and then take them off. And yeah. you know, it's this playbook that you can see if you like pay attention to turnarounds or yeah. like high growth companies or whatever. It's like that classic venture capital. Oh, you got to pivot and you got to, you're probably going to break a bunch of eggs as you do it. I'm not saying that he's doing it well, and I'm not saying that it's like good for Twitter, but also I don't think it's that haphazard of he's just, no one's ever done this before and he's just making all these weird yeah, moves. That's, that's it's just point. something that like, it's a play and it might not be done well, or it might not be appropriate to do it with Twitter because it's the public square and stuff like that. But also it's not that innovative and it's not like it's unprecedented. Now I'd like to end with a lesson from the world of sports. And that comes to us courtesy of the New England Patriots, who on the last play of their game against the Las Vegas Raiders ran a off tackle play. the The score was tied. The running back tied. made about the game was tied. It was the last play of regulation. The running back broke through the line, ran about 30, 35 yards, completely unexpectedly. And before he was tackled, he tossed it to a teammate, hopefully trying to recreate. The band is on the field play. And the man he tossed it to then turned and threw it backwards some 35 yards, hoping to hit the New England quarterback. But instead, it was intercepted by a Raider who ran it in for a touchdown. He also it's, ran over the quarterback in the process. He did. I remember the Joe Pisarchik fumble, which until this past Saturday was the stupidest play <laughs> of all time in the NFL. But now we have... Congrats Maybe. to Joe on giving up that title. Yeah, it is. It's a big deal. But what struck me was the comment by Coach Bill Belichick afterward. And he said, we try to teach situational awareness to our players. And I first thought about asking you guys about the role of a leader in situ situational awareness. But I realized Belichick wasn't talking about leadership. He was talking about every employee. He's talking about a method of training that teaches each employee, in this case, football players, to be aware of their surroundings, to be aware of the play, to be aware of the down, to be aware of the time of the game, to be aware of the score, and try to make the best decision you can based upon those situations. So I really wanted to use that as a way to ask you guys about training employees to be situationally aware. Are we in a high-risk situation? Does this margin look extraordinarily good? Is this a company or a customer, rather, that we can create a long-term relationship with? 
all of the sales factors that go through a salesperson's head with all of the other factors they have to consider in terms of internal controls and supply chain issues. Can we deliver, et cetera? So how do you help teach employees situational awareness in business? I think in sports, it's a little bit easier because it's the rules are so clear. The lines on the field are so clear. The goal is so clear. We're trying to win the game. We do that by scoring more points or scoring more goals than the competitors or the, who we're playing against. So the it's easier to give someone the recipe. At the end of the day, it's really an algorithm that needs to be embedded in the minds of everybody. Look at whatever scenario you just alluded to and run it through this algorithm to spit out what a high confidence best answer is, right? That's how you can McDonaldize decision-making to lower net risk inside of an organization. I think it comes down to culture and it comes down to values and it comes down to like clarity of message and how often that message is repeated. What's his name? Reed Hastings. He wrote that, that book, The No Rules, which is about the culture of Netflix. And I really liked that book. Him as a leader, notwithstanding, I think he's done some bonehead things, but haven't we all? That whole, the thing that I took away from that book was how they've simplified their code of conduct. They had one sort of statement that was, that was a guiding principle for kind of every single situation, which was, it's your job to do whatever is in the best interest of Netflix. And if you could violate a rule or if you had to violate a rule, but you could defend it with that, then that was going to be clear, right? So if you had to go outside of a purchasing, a standard sort of purchasing protocol to buy a bunch of televisions from Best Buy while at a conference because none of the TVs got delivered. That was an example from the book. Then you can very quickly point to say, we needed to have televisions at our conference booth for that was clearly in the best interest of Netflix. So I just think like situational leadership can only be enabled when there is a clarity of purpose and a clarity of some kind of uh, uh, algorithm that can be multiplied across a bunch of different scenarios. I think where we fall short is not clarifying that message or clarifying that like consistently or enough to where it really gets embedded and really believed in the minds of the employees. Yeah, I think the idea, the hope, the ideal of having all of your employees be champions of your culture and your risk management and your ethics and stuff like that is a great thing to pursue. And we always have to be in a continuous improvement mindset of, okay, how can we get more of that? How can we do more dynamic training or take the people who have heard this thing 10 times and make them more aware of the nuance of right. it or whatever? That's something you always want to drive toward. But like in the situation of this football team, it's relatively easy to tell the guys on the field, here's the play for the next two to 16 seconds. We're going to be running this play and this is what you all have to do. And it should be easy to gain compliance with that. I think in this in, in this scenario, it was like a massive multi-tiered failure of that, <laughs> right? As I understand it, Tom, the running back was told to run and go down. And he didn't. He lateraled it. And then he lateraled it, I think, to a receiver who should have heard that play and said, hey, the play is to run and go down. This ball just showed up in my hands. I'm going to go down. And he didn't. And then we can talk about whether the quarterback should have tackled the guy and stuff like that. But it should be relatively easy in a football team right. with that set of players to say, hey, here's the play for right now and we'll run another play play next. I think the thing that we have to think about as we're looking at like a culture of compliance and ethics at our organizations is you, to your point, you have a much more complex challenge and more complex balancing of different goals and stakeholders and all of that. So you need to think a little bit more deeply around what situational awareness can I 
try to build in people and rely that they have. And you have to build your controls and your systems and stuff around that stuff. But you brought up situational leadership. There's this model that says, hey, you know what? There are four stages of how much you can rely on someone to lead. One is basically like you tell them and teach them and watch them do it. And then, you know, the top one is you ask them what they're going right. to do and you count on them to do it. And then they just ask you if they, they have problems. You put people in these different tiers based on how proven, how well they've proven themselves to be able to be relied on for kind of that higher order leadership. We have to do that in our companies, right? Like you probably can't rely on every person to know all the regulations and all the exceptions and stuff like that. So you got to rein them in or teach them and stuff like that. So it's great to think of, hey, it would be great if I could give situational leadership to or situational awareness to everyone in my whole company and count on them to self-police. You can't do that. So you have to know what you can rely on which is why we need leadership, not just like managers, but we need leadership in the compliance and ethics program. And we need those people to be advocating for the right amount of integration of these ideas and thoughts into all employees' minds and hearts and actions and habits and stuff like that. But that's the game that we're playing as compliance and ethics experts is we're trying to figure out how can, you know, what can we rely on? What do we need to test? What do we need to restrict? And how do we tier that across all these actions and all these levels of seniority and all these people? If nothing else, give yourself a little bit of a break because Bill Belichick also had a massive compliance violation here that resulted in a huge fine of them losing the game against the Raiders. And he's dealing with a simpler set of constraints and a smaller team. And he's a world champion many times over. And he still messed up as well. That's, if anything, you have a much harder job than Bill Belichick. And if you're not having those, if you're not, if you don't hold the title for like worst compliance violation in the history of the game, then you're doing something right (laughs) and get yourself a little eggnog and kick your feet up this holiday season and enjoy yourself and congratulate yourself on a job well done because we're all kind of carrying the weight of the entire world of our organization on our shoulders and you're doing a great job. That seems like a great way to end this special holiday edition. So gents, thank you. And I hope you have a great holiday season with you and your family and stay safe. And we will look forward to the Gallo cast in 2023. See you next time. Do it. See you next year. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Gallo cast. I hope you'll join Nick and I in January where we get back together for another edition. It's been a ton of fun bringing this podcast series to you. It's uh, really more than uh, fun than a barrel of monkeys recording it with these guys. They're so great together. And I hope you get a sense of uh, what they're like from this podcast. If you'd like to see the video version of this, check out my YouTube channel, the Compliance Podcast Network, under the podcast Gallocast on YouTube. I hope you will have a very safe and joyous holiday season and new year. We will look forward to visiting you with you in 2023. If you haven't done so, I would appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on uh, iTunes. It would greatly help our rankings and get out the word about the uh, Gallocast beyond the compliance community. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you in 2023.